Welcome to the Answer Religious Air Show. My name is Brian Garlock. So glad you could tune in today. If you're watching us live, we appreciate it. You can send in your questions now to questions at answeringreligiousair.com. Again, that's questions at answeringreligiousair.com or private message us on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash answeringreligiousair. Those are the two best ways to get a hold of us. Today is our live Bible Q&A, and so we are taking questions right now. We will do our very best to get to those live questions, but we do have some lined up, ready to go as well. We appreciate all those who send in throughout the week to those two places. We also want to make mention about a special announcement that starting April 4th, all our Tuesday live interactive Bible studies will be moving to 12 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, we are normally are at the 8 p.m. Eastern time slot, but it will be 12 p.m. For those who do watch at night, we appreciate, uh, but that's not going to really bother you. You can watch on demand if you're not able to catch us live at the lunchtime hour. Uh, but also we will have that uploaded for the podcast. And so both shows for ARE, which is Tuesday at 12 p.m. and Wednesday at 12 p.m. Uh, will be uploaded on podcast. And uh, that's moving forward starting April 4th. And so be looking forward to that. We also have been doing a study of Ecclesiastes. We have one more chapter, chapter 12, next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern time. Again, the new time does not start till 12 till April 4th. And so next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern time is the last chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, then we've got a really uh, neat uh, series that we're going to begin called Why I Believe. And so we're going to be looking at different uh, topics concerning uh, why we believe in God, in the inspired word of God, in Jesus, in the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, we're going to be looking at those kind of kinds of topics. And so if that is something that interests you, we'd encourage you to check us out starting in April with a series called Why I Believe. All right, gentlemen, it's good seeing every one of you today. Looking forward to uh, the show that we have lined up. Brian, Mark, Terry, uh, the ancient one, I think, is what your 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 letters there stand for. And then uh, Stephen. Yes, sir. All right. Uh, so appreciate y'all being on the show today. Let's open with a word of prayer. And uh, the ancient one, let's uh, let's start with you. How about you lead us? All right. Almighty God, the Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for this. Uh, technology that enables us to reach out to so many in so short a time and so quickly. And we're thankful for the opportunity that you've given unto us to come together and, and present this show, this program, uh, to answer these Bible questions uh, that have been asked by so many. We pray that you'll help us to have clear minds and uh, recollection of the scriptures that we might give truly biblical answers that those listening might be encouraged and edified, but also, and most importantly, that you will be glorified. Pray for those that are sick and infirm, that you will bless the hands that are ministering unto them. We pray for those who are traveling, that you will bring them safely to the destination and, and home again. And help us all to conduct ourselves always in a manner pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. Appreciate uh, that. All right. This is our live Bible Q&A. Again, you can email us questions at answeringreligiousair.com or private message us facebook.com slash answeringreligiousair. You can also come on the show if you'd like to follow the instructions on Facebook and YouTube descriptions. 
and come on the show uh, via video or audible or audio only. And we'll be sure to take your question and you can uh, chat with, uh, with the panel live. But first it is meantime. Okay. Uh, today's meme, our uh, picture that's being uh, shared around on Facebook comes from a guy who calls himself uh, Reverend Doctrine Caleb J. Lines. Uh, he shared this, and in the caption, he says, combat bad theology with this mini-sermon. And today's mini-sermon is this. Jesus was crucified for standing up to empire, not to atone for the sins of humanity. And so that's how he interprets uh, the scriptures, and he says that those who uh, claim that Jesus died to atone for the sins of humanity, he says that's bad theology. So we want to discuss that. Uh, Brian, you're right underneath me. So let's start with you. Well, uh, uh, Reverend Dr. Caleb J. Lines, by the way, I bet he's never read Matthew 23 about uh, the idea of titles and what Jesus thought of those. Um, he, but he's well known for putting out very slanderous, anti-biblical, anti-Christian statements. Uh, ironically, he's a member of the Disciples of Christ, which, uh, um, you know, if you're very familiar with uh, that, that group that split off from the Lord's Church uh, about a century ago. Um, but when we look at these statements, we have to understand that, that first and foremost, the scriptures abundantly and often tell us that Jesus did die for our sins. Um, yeah. a, a passage that jumps to my mind, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, the gospel is that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That's the characteristic, the fundamental characteristic. I went back and watched Caleb uh, Lyne's uh, actual sermon on this subject just to get a better sense of what he's trying to say in case I misunderstood him. I didn't. Uh, he doesn't believe Jesus died for his sins. He believes that Jesus was put to death by the Roman Empire. He doesn't believe the Jews had any place or part in that death and, and that the Romans killed him purely for being uh, a government rebellion uh, leader, which is completely contrary to the gospel accounts. The gospel accounts are abundantly clear. Jesus was killed because of the enmity of the Jews. Uh, they delivered him up to Pilate. That's both the accounts that are given in the gospel records, as well as later statements by other writers, uh, that they compelled the Romans to put him to death, despite the fact that the Romans did not want to do so. And that ultimately, even, even Roman records testify to the idea that Jesus's death was not uh, a legitimate one for that reason. Uh, so here you have somebody who's saying something that's completely unscriptural and unbiblical, also unhistorical, uh, problematic all the way around. But he has a lot of followers because he fits a, a, a niche that people like. That is people that despise the Bible, but still want to come across as religious. Appreciate the comment there. Good stuff. Uh, Stephen? Yeah, so um, this is um, uh, going right along with the current cultural uh, sort of zeitgeist. That is the uh, critical theory. That's really what's happening here. Is it's it's about viewing everything through power structures. The um, terrible irony here is that it makes Jesus into a victim as opposed to a victor. Mm -hmm. Um, that he is a victim of empire. He's a victim of the powerful, just like we are, you know, from the standpoint of, of critical theory. And so uh, instead of Jesus being the conqueror who, who stood up not simply to empire, but to uh, the spiritual 
principalities and powers. Um, it truncates, uh, as so much critical theory does, into very small-minded, um, sort of um, us-focused, um, temporal-focused uh, realities instead of focusing on the spiritual realities. And as Brian said, it just goes completely opposed to everything the scripture says. Um, this idea he was crucified for standing up to empire means that he didn't choose to die. He didn't have purpose in his death, uh, but rather that he was trying to accomplish something and they stopped him. Uh, the, the biblical picture is Jesus chose, as he told Pilate, you have no power except the power my father gave you. And mm -hmm. so he chose to go to the cross uh, and he did so with the purposes that he states. And of course that the apostles state, all this is, is, is modern eisegesis. That's reading modern notions back into a text right. uh, to try to make it coincide with whatever people are thinking at the moment. Yeah. Good stuff. Uh, Bob. You know, and what all I've studied and, and read in the scriptures the Roman Empire had very little interest in Jesus. It was it was the Jews uh, who were bothered by him because he was exposing their hypocrisy. Uh, he was exposing uh, their lack of love for the truth, their elevation of uh, tra man-made tradition over the scriptures, giving people loopholes through which to escape their responsibility from the law. That was what the Jews and were doing, and they didn't like it that Jesus was exposing that and uh as uh stephen pointed out yeah the romans uh, didn't want to crucify him Pilate didn't see any reason to and and tried to get out of it he gave a a weak case he uh you can tell by reading the scriptures that he doesn't see anything wrong with it he wanted to let jesus go he was hoping that by uh whipping jesus that that would be sufficient for the jews uh, but they threatened to go over his head uh, to Caesar. And so he, he acquiesced out of pressure from the Jews. I mean, that's clearly revealed in the Bible. And if you're not going to accept what the Bible says about the purpose of the cross, why even affirm that there was even such a thing occurring that Jesus went to the cross yeah, if yeah. not for the purpose revealed in the Bible? Good stuff. And I think that's the problem is he doesn't read the Bible, like you said. Uh, Mark Dunnigan. Good thoughts, you guys. Great thoughts. Um, there are so many things wrong with this meme. You know, it's interesting. The pro it, it shifts the emphasis. The problem is not empire. Bible doesn't view the empire as a problem. Uh, people tried to suck Jesus into like a political sort of thing in Luke 13. And Jesus refused. Jesus said, the problem is not the Romans. The problem is that unless you repent, you will perish. The problem is your sins. There are numerous passages that tell us that Jesus came to die for our sins. John 3, 16. Um, Luke chapter 19, verse 10. He came to seek and save that which was lost. Uh, not to like get rid of empire or revolutionary or, or kind of destroy all empire. Not only that, but we're told to pray for the authorities. First Timothy 2, 1 and 2. We're told to submit to the governing authorities. And at that time, it was the Roman Empire, Romans 13. We're told to honor the governing authorities, like 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Honor the king and the governor and everyone sent by him and to be good citizens. And as Brian noted, 
the gospel, the foundation of the gospel is Jesus died for our sins and he rose. He died for our sins. And if you're looking for the word atone, 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 talks about him being the propitiation for our sins. That's it's it's really this is one of those places, Brian, like when people say baptism does not save you. Oops. We got a passage in 1 Peter 21, 1 Peter 3, 21 that says baptism now saves you. Mm-hmm. That this meme, we have clear passages that say the exact opposite of the meme. And sadly, sadly, what this does is it creates in people the idea the problem is not me and my sins or me and my selfishness. The problem is some authority structure. That's what the problem is. And so God's not on my case because I'm lying and sleeping with my girlfriend and getting drunk and doing drugs and looking at porn on the internet. Oh, no, none of that's a problem. It's the authority structure. And it shifts the entire emphasis. Oh, and by the way, by the way, these horrible empires, these horrible authority structures, is that the same authority structure that gives us dependable electricity, clean water, uh, transportation systems, um, like a common currency where you can go and swipe your debit card at a gas station? And is that the same empire that gives you like a, a order where farmers can create food and it gets processed and grocery stores are full of food and, and, um, where you can get on mass transit and go to your concert or to your coffee shop. Is that that same evil empire that's doing all of that? So, oh, and by the way, I just wish, Brian, that people like this individual would say, hey, by the way, I'm using, when I use the term reverend, I'm using a term that is only applied to God in scripture. Just so you know, I'm taking a title that's reserved for God and apply it to myself. Oh, Mm -hmm. and by the way, that, when I say this meme, there's actually passages in the Bible that say the opposite, and the Bible would actually call me a false teacher. So just let you know, just let you know up front here that um, this is the way the Bible would picture me if we're really going to take the text seriously and honestly. I just wish people were honest when they said, said like, hey, by the way, I'm saying something that the Bible contradicts, but I'm saying it. Uh, because it's my will, not God's will. Those are my, those are my thoughts, Brian. I appreciate your thoughts. And you forgot to mention that those who go to the coffee shop spend six dollars on the coffee that they choose to do so. Uh, Terry, what you got? I was just thinking that as uh, you look at his saying bad theology, how do you determine bad and good th- theology? You just pull it out of the air and ignore the testimony of the prophets before Jesus got here, like Isaiah fifty-three. That he was going to be bruised for our iniquities. You're just going to, you're going to make in my past uh, of uh, John the Baptist and of Jesus himself and of Paul. You're just going to throw all of that and just classify that as bad theology. And here you are going to rescue humanity with your superior thinking that Jesus was merely crucified because he got in trouble with the Roman Empire. Uh, no, I don't think you know anything about theology, the study of God, because you're not listening to the testimony of God himself. Those are my thoughts. Amen. Um, appreciate those comments there, guys. And uh, I mean, great. Hey, great answers uh, to that meme. And 
if uh, you need more clarification, you can email us questions at answeringreligiouserror.com or private message us on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash answeringreligiouserror. Maybe you have a meme that you see going around on Facebook or Twitter. Uh, send it to us. We'd love to answer it for you. All right. Our first question for the day. The foreigners in numbers 9, 14, 15, 14 through 16, 26, 29, 19, and 10, etc. Were these foreigners who were uh, were these foreigners who were merely traveling through or who were more like proselytes? If just travelers, why did God make them keep the law while they were passing through, uh, including punishing them with the death penalty if they transgressed the law? Leviticus 18, 26, 22, etc. All right. Uh, let's start with you, Stephen, who's nodding the head up and down. Yeah, so um, it, it, it is um, both. It is people who have come to dwell and it is people who are sojourning and traveling through Israel. Um, it is one of the, I think, most overlooked aspects about passages concerning strangers that God placed very clear and distinct rules on people who came into the presence of God's people. If the, there was uh, something of an open borders policy, that is, you, you were welcome to come into Israel if, and there were big ifs. Those ifs, by and large, uh, meant if you are willing to live by the law that rules this land. Now, I, I would say uh, why, as to the question of why would these rules apply? Well, the same reason that rules apply when you go to another country. Uh, when you go into that country, the rules of that country apply to you as long as you live there. Now, I would also say this, that... Um, uh, as far as the overlooking is concerned, much of what is said about the stranger has to do with benevolence. The idea of a sojourner, the idea of uh, generally it, it would be a refugee, somebody who's running away or escaping, perhaps some some sort of ravages happening in their country. Um, it is never presented as an enviable position. Like you don't want to be in this. These are not people taking like pleasure cruises. These are people who are in dire distress. They're placed right alongside um, the needy. For instance, in Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 20 or 19 verse 10. In Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verses 20 and 21, they're placed alongside the orphan and the widow. That is someone who has lost the, the means by which they generally take care of themselves. And so you are jumping in along with the widow, the orphan, the needy, and you're taking care of these. But the rules apply to them just like everyone else. And that is all through Exodus chapter 12, verse 49, Leviticus chapter 24, verse 22, Numbers, the several passages you mentioned, Deuteronomy 31, verse 12, Joshua chapter 8, verses 33 through 35. Now, here's one more thing I would point out. Laws are not mere prohibitions. Laws are the things that provide for the benefits and protections of everyone. And so when you come into Israel, it would not be appropriate for those laws to simply be dropped. You don't want those protections. You don't want the blessings that come along. That's why you would be coming into Israel, is that you would want all the blessings that come from living under a law that God himself has made. And those laws are founded upon remembrances, 
that would be the Passover and so forth. They are, they are founded on uh, devotion and sacrifice to God. So you'd want to participate in that. And so all the things that are required uh, are things that are required for their good. Um, as to the overlooking, people generally look at that benevolence part. And then they want to apply it somehow to our modern day. This kind of goes back to our meme. And they say, God said, take care of the strangers. And we should open our doors to immigrants. And to that, I say, absolutely. Are they ready to come and follow laws? Are they ready to come and, and be a part of the society into which they are moving and proclaiming they want to move to? And that's, that's what we find in Scripture. Yeah. Um, that's the pattern. And so uh, we need to be real careful about picking and choosing what we want to um, take from, you know, what what the prophets may say about the stranger. The prophets are building that on what the law says about the stranger. Yeah, good point. Uh, Mark. Well, and I think this is one of those great places in Leviticus 18.24. It says, do not defile yourselves by any of these things, for by all these, the nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled. And, and, I, and I think the thought is that it, it's, it, it's not that the, the foreigner shows up and he's put to death because he forgot to take his hat off or, or whatever. It's you look at Leviticus 18 and it's don't commit adultery and don't have sex with animals and don't sacrifice your children, you know, and it's like, well, I'm not, I'm not an Israelite. Why do I have to follow? Well, because those laws apply to everybody, okay? And I think that's the, the important thing in Leviticus chapter 18 is, oh, by the way, God's marriage law, which includes a prohibition on adultery, guess what? That law does not just apply to Israelites. That law applies to everyone. Those are universal laws. Yeah, if you're, Israelite, if you're an Israelite, you can't sacrifice your children. And if you're a pagan, you can't sacrifice your children either. It's wrong. And, and, and I think that's something that sometimes today people somehow are under the misconception that, well, Christians are under a bunch of rules, but non-Christians are not under any rules. No, they're under God's law as well. Those are my thoughts, Brian. All right. Appreciate that. I think that was covered well. Uh, next question here that we have. Let me see. All right. There we go. Jesus died to finish the law. All Hebrew or House of Israel genealogy ended in 70 AD with the destruction of the temple. Are not modern Jews Jewish by choice and not inheritance? Uh, interesting question. Uh, Brian, what you got? Um, it's an interesting question, but I don't think it's an easy one to answer. Um, I think we're kind of uh, stuck with a sense of, number one, we, we don't know for sure exactly how accurate that statement might be. And number two, maybe it doesn't really matter one way or another uh, as well. Um, there's always a question about the genealogies that were destroyed. Um, actually, the the first account of the destruction of genealogies was prior to the destruction of the temple in AD 70. There's an account through Eusebius, I think, um, quoting somebody else that says that Herod the Great went in and whenever they were critical of his uh, lack of Jewish genealogy when he was made king of the Jews, uh, that he destroyed uh, a lot of the genealogies early on. Now, now that's problematic because we know like uh, afterwards, there are several times where people are quoting the genealogies as though they still existed. Josephus uh, seems to use them, um, although, you know, we don't know where he's getting his from. Some people think maybe Luke is using them. Uh, Luke and Matthew are using genealogies as well uh, that were written down 
of course, they're inspired, so you know it doesn't really uh, uh, matter much one way or the other. Um, but we just know today that there are no genealogies. In other words, there's nobody who can sit down and say, yeah, I can trace my genealogy back and, and go back in time. So at some point, the, necessarily those genealogies are lost. Um, and so the identification of being a descendant of uh, Israel for a, for a uh, Levitical requirement, and we saw this in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, that you had to show your genealogy in order to, to fulfill the roles of priest and such, uh, that those things aren't done. That being said, I don't know that it really matters whether the people today who say I'm Jewish are Jewish by choice or Jewish by descent. Um, I, I'm willing to consider that either are possible, and I'm not sure it really makes much of a difference um, insofar as the characteristics of the gospel. Um, all of those things were were finished with Christ's resurrection. Um, the, the, the Jew and the Gentile are reconciled. I like the way Paul says it in Ephesians, that the death of Jesus brings those two groups of people, the Jew and the Gentile, makes them one. It, it, it takes away the thing that uh, stood between them, which was the law of Moses, and it reconciles them and makes peace between them. So there is no distinction. Paul says it in Galatians that in Jesus Christ, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave or free, uh, a pretty common statement in the New Testament. So uh, with that question, I don't have a great answer because you know we're not precisely sure when those genealogies actually were destroyed, uh, whether it was before AD 70, at AD 70, or even later. We know they're not around today, and it really just doesn't matter much. If somebody it could prove uh, without a doubt that they're a descendant of Abraham, it, it doesn't matter because Paul will say the true descendants of Abraham uh, are the descendants by faith, not, not by his bloodline. Yeah, I just uh, add on to all of that, that, you know, I, I want to be very careful about saying to somebody that they're not an ethnic Jew. We have DNA uh, that allows us to do lots of tracing through genes that, that weren't present before. Um, as Brian said, none of it matters ultimately, but somebody can make a legitimate claim and, and through DNA show that they are an ethnic Jew, that they do come from this ethnicity, just like I can uh, show that that my people come from uh, northern Scotland. And and so you, you can there, there are two separate issues here. People certainly are religious Jews by choice, but then I'm, I'm not sure I'm, I'm willing to say they're ethnic Jews by choice. And, and we want to be careful not to be maybe insulting along those lines. All right. Anyone else? I think that's well, just Bob left. <laughs> I don't know where everybody's going. But anyway, all right. Uh, appreciate uh, the question there. I think we've got a, a live question. We've got someone who wants to come on the show. Uh, I think he's in the background now. Uh, Colton, are we good to go? All right. Give us one second here. Uh, Martin, can you hear us? All right, we're having some technical difficulties, so we will come back to, to him. Looks All like right. he's frozen. Yeah. Okay, uh, next question here that we have. Uh, why did they use strong drink at sacrifices? Numbers 28-7. Um, Mark, you want to take a stab at it first? Well, it's interesting, Brian. There's a number of things there on the drink offering um, that you will have that's poured out. And that you would find different substances. I think some have wine, some there have like strong drink in that section. Of course, that's not distilled alcohol because that doesn't come 
that's not even invented until centuries later. Um, but it's there, it, it's poured out, it's poured out when they do the sacrifices. And, you know, there's quite a lot of bit written on this. It's interesting that Paul will talk about himself as poured out as a drink offering in at least two passages in the New Testament uh, on, on the sacrifice and service of their faith. Uh, I think there's a passage in Philippians and there's a passage in either first or second Timothy that is along those lines. And I'm not sure. I'm not sure. One, and this is just some speculation, Brian, is that in the book of Leviticus, after the death of Nadab and Abihu, there is a prohibition stated that when the priests are there serving, they're not to be drinking any alcohol. And 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 I don't know if it's just kind of one of those things, kind of a safety thing of that alcohol, a fermented substance is brought, but it's poured out. It's poured out at the sacrifice. And maybe there's also emphasis here, Brian, just, just a theory, kind of a theory I have, that in many pagan religions, the priests would get into an inebriated state through different drugs. And that's the way, supposedly, they made contact with their gods or deities. And in fact, that's still very popular today. There's a number of groups out there, and there's a lot that people talk about now of how have, using different psychedelics in order to encounter the divine, etc., And I think it's interesting in Israel that God wants his priest sober, completely sober, that we're not faking any of this, that, that we're not using any sort of artificial substance to get us into some sort of state is that, yeah, we go there and then we pour it out. And Brian, maybe the other thought would be, and I like this idea is that this is worship and the worship is about God, not you. And so here's the substance here. This here's the substance that some people would like to use for personal use. Guess what? You're pouring it out. You're pouring it out. And uh, that's kind of my thoughts on that particular topic. I appreciate the question because it it made this old guy think a little bit. I hear you. Uh, the ancient one. What you got for me? The ancient one has to find the mute button. Okay, well, there was an occasion, and I was looking for it and didn't see it, where David was in, in a battle, and three of his uh, biggest supporters in his army went through great difficulty to get some water for David because they were out of drinkable water. And when they bring it to David, David doesn't drink it. He pours it out as a drinking, drink offering. This was not an insult to those men, but it honored them by... Uh, using their efforts to uh, to show praise to God and appreciation to God. And so it wasn't always strong drink that was poured out. David poured out water as a drink offering on that occasion. And so uh, it's not a waste. It's just showing that you're, you're sacrificing something precious uh, for God. And that is why uh, Paul said to Timothy that, I've been poured out as I'm about to be poured out as a drink offering. He had already sacrificed his life is that is given his life to the proclamation of the gospel. And now he's about to give his, uh, his essence, his, uh, his life altogether, his soul, his spirit was about to be poured out also along with his physical exertion that he had, that he had given. All right. Appreciate it. All right, I think that uh, covers that. Um, I think we've got Martin ready to go in the background here, so let's go ahead and pull him up. 
Martin, can you hear me? Yeah, you're muted there. There you go. Can you hear me? Yes. All right. I can hear you. Greetings to your big brothers. Hey, thank you for coming on the show. Uh, go ahead with your question. Thank you so much for this opportunity, brothers. I appreciate your time here. Uh, I'm your viewer from Kenya. And uh, the question uh, comes from my experience I've had last year, in the, uh, to the end of last year, when I went to some of the small congregations that we work with here in Kenya. Uh, and uh, this was the situation. You know, I, I mean, first Timothy, I shared this with Brother uh, Colton, uh, where the Bible says in verses 12 of 1 Timothy chapter 2, where I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority of a man, rather she is to remain quiet. Okay. All so right. So you want us to comment on well, that? Uh, well, just a few seconds, uh, uh, then you, I will give you a chance to comment. Okay, last year I visited a congregation that my father has visited, but uh, he has never shared with me about the situation there. But I Martin, you're muted. We got an idea of where you're going with this, so we're going to just go ahead and comment on the on the verse, and uh, you'll be able to watch us. And if if you need more clarification later, we can certainly uh, do that for you. Uh, Brian Haynes, let's start with you. Um, kind of explain that verse to him. Yeah. So uh, the context of the book of First Timothy in chapter three and verse fifteen, we're told is how we're supposed to conduct ourselves in the church. Um, it's about setting up the church, setting up the order of the church, setting up the uh, even worship in the church and things like that. And chapter two is uh, tying us in with the co some concepts around worship and prayer. And so he speaks to us here in chapter two, uh, uh, specifically at verse 12. Uh, you know, he, he'd been talking about the, uh, the manner, the behavior of many women. And uh, in verse 12, he says, I do not permit a woman to have to teach or have authority over a man, but to be silent. Um, now, sometimes people question whether this was something specific to the time or if it's universal. Well, Paul appeals to the book of Genesis as the authority on this, which is universal. I mean, we're all uh, descendants of Adam and Eve, so it's not something that's merely a cultural apropos. He's saying that this is the universal way that the church is meant to conduct itself. All places, all over the world, all throughout time, uh, that women weren't to teach within the church setting uh, and specifically teach and have authority over a man. We know there are other statements, though, like in Titus chapter 2, which, which tell us that women are to teach other women um, and, uh, you know, and to, to be managers of their homes, so they teach their children. Uh, but in the circumstance we're talking about here, women to teach over men or have authority over men is not permissible. Perhaps uh, those two terms, defining teaching and defining authority, are where people run into their problems. Because, you know, the, the question is, you know, what does it mean to teach? Well, let's first and foremost say, uh, speaking within the context of the church assembly, that would, uh, that would parallel us over to 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 34, where it says women are keep silent in the churches. Um, and that would tell us the idea that women would not teach uh, a, a Bible class where men are present. Women would not lead singing. Women would not lead prayers. Uh, women uh, are not uh, authorized to uh, to serve in a public way where they would be uh, serving in a way that uh, in the assembly that would uh, have a presentation of authority. 
And again, those are statements not made just uh, for a cultural statement. Those are universal statements that women are not permitted to have that uh, place of authority or teaching in those circumstances. At the same time, too, uh, the idea of teaching over a man, First uh, Timothy chapter 2, would probably also render a private setting uh, an inappropriate thing as well, where a woman had a didactic teaching, didactic meaning she's intending to teach him, not just that she says, makes a comment or she says something. Uh, we would often say that within a Bible class, women making comments doesn't necessarily uh, usurp authority or take away from that authority. Um, but the idea of, of an intentional didactic, I use that term, uh, the, the idea of uh, intentionally teaching as a place of authority would be the conversation there. So that kind of gives us a background of the passage and some thoughts on the passage. And I'll let other men comment uh, if they have other thoughts. Well, Martin is back, so let's uh, let's bring him back. And Martin, can you hear us now? You're you're muted. Go ahead and try yeah. one more time to finish your story there. Thank you. Uh, I don't think I don't think the internet's going to work. I tell you what, you're going to have to you're going to have to email us. Can you all like, hear me? Uh, yes, sir, but you, you're breaking up really bad, and so we're going to have to get you to email your question to us, okay? Okay. All right. Sorry about that, guys. Okay, uh, Bob, did you, have a, did you have a comment you wanted to make? Yes, if we take this passage in its context, I think we'll see that, uh, that Brain, I mean Brian, uh, was correct. Uh, I desire. Thank you. For, hold on. We got to stop right now. Thank you for doing that because yeah. that I've been waiting for that moment. And so you just made my day. Starting with verse eight. I desire your, your name there. Go ahead. Yeah. The ancient one. <laughs> I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Uh, now, it is instructed for men to pray everywhere and they're to do this uh, in faith uh, without doubting. And I don't think he's demanding that we hold up our hands, but that our hands should be holy if indeed we hold them up when we pray. And that was uh, pretty traditional back then. But then he says in verse nine, in like manner also. So part of that applies also to women. Not all of it, but part of it. In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. And so she is to be holy too, everywhere, not just in the assembly, uh, not just in the family, but everywhere. She is to uh, dress and, and conduct herself in a manner appropriate with the claim uh, to be holy. And, and then he says, let a woman learn in silence with all submission. So here comes the contrast. There was a comparison. But now there's a contrast. Let a woman learn in silence with submission. She's not to take the lead. She is to be, she is to submit and to learn in silence. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. And as Brian pointed out, it's based on the uh, universal uh, example of Adam and Eve. Adam was first created, then Eve. Adam was not deceived. The woman was deceived. And so it's, it's only right that God gives to man uh, the headship in the family and the right to 
to rule over women and to do the praying when they are when they are together. Women can certainly pray among themselves. They can certainly pray when they're teaching a class of children. But in a gender mixed assembly, they're not to do that. They are to learn in silence. All right. Anyone else? All right. Appreciate uh, that, Martin. And I'm sorry that we can't listen to you. Uh, the Internet is just not working out. But uh, private message us on our Facebook page and we will be sure to, to take your question there and, and uh, clarify some things for you there. Next question. Uh, were the vowels in Numbers 30 religious only or any vowel? It's a good question. Uh, Terry, what you got for me? And you are muted. There you go. Yeah, thank you. Um, it looks to me like it's any vowel, uh, every kind of agreement by which um, she's bound herself, unless overruled by her father or her husband. The context brings out those those things that she can be overruled by her husband or by her father. But it seems to me that it's not making any certain uh, um, kind of vow, like a, something that's religious in the context of a religious ceremony or something. But there's any vow she makes unless her father or her or her husband uh, steps in to overrule that vow. So that would be my my perspective. Every 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 vow you make, and you're making a a commitment, and you're making a promise. Uh, then that's you got to keep it unless you're overruled. Okay. You know, Brian, I think this is an interesting question when they say religious or any vow. I, I would think it seems like Jesus would say, be careful about trying to make a distinction like that of which promises you have to keep and which promises you don't have to keep. The Pharisees, the Pharisees got into, they became very expert or adept at, well, when I made that promise, here's the way I worded it. That is the wording of the promise or what I swore by, whatever. And, and Jesus comes back and says, hey, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And be careful of things like maybe and we'll see and, you know, kind of keeping it vague or whatever. If you could do something, do it. If you don't want to do something, then then if you don't, if you're, if you're, if you don't want to do something, give it a hard no. <laughs> give it a hard no. Those are my thoughts. You know, not only can uh, in the Jewish law there, as, as Terry pointed out, not only can the father or uh, or husband uh, override the vow that a woman makes, God can. Uh, we ought to obey God rather than man, Acts chapter 5. If, if I make a vow, let's say that I am a Catholic and I make a vow when I get married that any children we have are going to be raised Catholics. And then I'm converted to Christ. Well, is that a vow I need to keep? No, that's not a vow you need to keep. That is a vow you should not have made to begin with. And so uh, God can overrule our vows. It depends upon what we're vowing or, or promising to do. Uh, the same thing with a, an unscriptural marriage. You may take a vow and promise to, uh, to be faithful to this woman and, and be her husband as long as you live. But, if you don't have a right to be married, then you certainly don't have a, a right to keep that promise. Uh, you need to dissolve that marriage uh, just as soon as, as possible after you learn that it is not pleasing to God because you don't want to go on committing fornication just because of the value made at the, 
at the wedding, it, it was a, a vow you shouldn't have made because you were not eligible uh, for marriage. Did you have a comment, Stephen? Yeah, let me just uh, add one element here. In Leviticus chapter 27, uh, there seems to be an indication that even if, if you make a vow, um, uh, excluding certain vows, um, which do seem to be uh, specifically vows to the Lord, there were valuations for um, sort of absolving yourself of that vow. You had to pay something, um, but, um, and this kind of goes along with what Bob's saying, sometimes people do say things and then wish they hadn't. And God knows that, and God provides for that. Um, what we don't, I mean, I, I appreciate and, and agree with everything. You know, we want to be careful, as Mark said, be careful about what you promise and what you say. Uh, but on the other hand, we grow. And at, at, at a certain point, we look back and think, oh, I, I should not have promised that. Uh, that really was not a good thing to promise. Um, and so uh, God makes provision for that sort of thing. And I think, for instance, as you look at the story of Jephthah uh, in, in the book of Judges, uh, I think that one thing that we need to be careful of is that we don't take away from that story that if you promise to kill someone for the Lord, then you do that no matter what. You know, that's not the lesson to learn from Jephthah um, is, uh, is keep your vow no matter how horrific it might be. Um, in fact, I think one of the points of the book of Judges is just an illustration of how chaotic life was during that time when every man did what was right in his own heart and they had no king, which is kind of how the book ends. So um, there, there is an element here of do you have the authority to make that vow, you know, with the women and, and who they're under authority of? Uh, I would say, you know, children in general would would be under the authority of their parents. And then there's the question of, is this a vow that you need to keep or is it something that you need to ask for release from? Um, and that may ne need to be inappropriate. And of course, all the caveats have already been stated, which is just don't make many vows. You know, don't don't make vows that you don't want to keep. Yeah. Amen to all that. All right. Appreciate the question there. Next one that we have. Does the description of love in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7 apply in its entirety to God, whose nature is partially defined by love, 1 John 4, 8? Are there perhaps features within the description that only apply to Christians and not to God? All right. Appreciate the question. Uh, Terry? Well, let me, uh, you got the passage here. We'll go ahead and read that. That'll be fine. Uh, love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong, suffer, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Terry, what you got for me? Well, God is love, and because that's his characteristic, then he expects his children to be of the same characteristic as himself. I'm not sure what the questioner has in mind about uh, God not being uh, not being characterized by some of these things. It looks to me, I mean, I'm going through that. Uh, I'm not seeing anything in there that just stands out as a thing that wouldn't apply to God. Uh, it's because God is all of these things that 
that he expects us to emulate uh, what he's like. His character needs to be in our in ourselves. Second Peter chapter one uh, says that he's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And uh, it's with the goal that his nature might become our nature. And I think probably that's what he's doing here is laying out some of the characteristics of love because that is the nature of God. If I'm missing something, somebody else pick that up. Well, my, my guess is that is that perhaps someone is looking through here and thinking, uh, maybe there's some element here that they can show from another passage that God uh, does not inhabit or display one of these characteristics. Um, but I, I would say if that's the case, um, that there, there may be some of these that um, are true, but limited. So for instance, love is patience. Our love is patient. Uh, is, is patient without exhaustion? It is not in us and it is not in God, but that's not inconsistent to say that love is this, but that at some point that reaches its limit. Um, I would say the same thing is, with uh, is not provoked. Um, you know, we, we see that the Lord has, is provoked to anger, right, in, in several passages. And we also might be provoked to anger. But the idea would be is not easily provoked to anger. It's not that like never, ever, uh, under no circumstances, that would not be a just God, right? I don't, I don't want a God who could not possibly be provoked. I, I'll say as a father, my children don't want a father who could never, ever be provoked no matter what. So as you're looking down through these qualities, I, I think that one of the problems could be, and I'm not sure what the, what the point of the question is, but it could be that the uh, implication is that these cannot all be absolutely true. Well, I don't think they're absolutely true of anyone. I think that they are generally true uh, and they are what typically characterizes love. Good thoughts. Anyone else? You know, not only does John in 1 John 4, 8 say God is love, but the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12 and verse 29 says, for our God is a consuming fire. And this goes hand in hand, I think, with what Stephen said. Uh, he's, he's a loving God, yes, but he is a just God. He's a righteous God. He hates sin. If, if God could not be provoked by unrighteousness, then he would not be holy. And we should be provoked, uh, not by anger, not to anger, but to righteous indignation when we see unrighteous acts being performed or unrighteous things uh, being said. And, and again, I don't think that is inconsistent with this passage. When you consider the, uh, uh, the qualifications of an elder, he's got to be patient, long-suffering. Yes, that's true. But as, as Stephen pointed out, God's patience does not mean that it is uh, cannot be exhausted. I mean, in Genesis chapter 6, he was long-suffering. <laughs> But his suffering came to an end after 120 years, and and he brought the flood and destroyed everybody but eight people. And so, uh, it is, his holiness and his love is is what makes him uh, makes it possible for him to be provoked or be uh, provoked to action by the unrighteousness of men. 
All right. Appreciate uh, those comments there, guys. All right. Martin, who was on the show earlier, we finally got his question. So I'm going to read the question here and uh, y'all can take a stab at it. Brothers, I visited uh, to study with the congregation last year that have uh, saints with hearing uh, disabilities. We had a lady there by name of Jacqueline who was there for sign language training. Uh, Jacqueline was translating in sign language for the deaf brethren. She has to sit on a chair in front while doing this. Also, Jacqueline's husband, David, is one of the deaf saints, and he is one of the men in leadership, and that teaches the congregation there. Uh, so when David is teaching, she is sign language. And so basically the question is, is Jacqueline teaching is she, and is she teaching over men? Is she uh, usurping authority? And is she going against First Timothy chapter uh, 2, verse 12? So what's your thoughts there? I, I would say, um, you know, from my standpoint, uh, I, I think that this would be even less instruct answering a question in a class um, from the standpoint of she is not the originator of any of these ideas. She is facilitating communication from one, from the one who is doing the teaching right. uh, to someone else. She is a mere middleman as it were. Uh, and so um, I, I, I don't think at all that's taking a position of authority. The, the, the job of interpreter in fact is to, um, is to try as little as possible to get in the way between the teacher and the listener, right? It, 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 they're, they're the ones trying to facilitate that interaction and they really don't take an active role, but rather a passive role of simply taking this information from here and giving it to this person over here. Yeah. I think that answered the question, unless someone else has something else. I, I just want to say, if it were to come out that, this signer was misrepresenting anything said by the preacher, uh, then that would constitute uh, usurping authority and ought, she ought to be uh, reprimanded and perhaps even removed from that position. But as long as she is doing merely the translating or the communicating what he is actually saying, then I don't believe there's a problem with the role itself. And that would be true if that sign language, uh, if the person doing sign language was male or female. Right. Um, frankly, if they're misrepresented. Yeah. Uh, Brian, did you have a comment or uh, other than just to say that whenever we talk about matters of liberty, we do always include the, the caveat to say that uh, no, we, we also don't want such a thing to be a stumbling block. If there was a if there was a large number of brethren in the congregation who said, I, 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 that's a real problem for me, then we might you might have to reconsider that, not because there uh, there's something violating first Timothy chapter two, but because of the matter of people's consciousness being violated. Okay. All right. Appreciate that. And I, I think uh, that's covered well. Uh, uh, Martin, if you need any more clarification on that, please don't hesitate to email us questions at answeringreligiousera.com or private message us on our Facebook page. That's all the time we have for today. It is 1155. Any last minute comments, guys, before we close up? All right. Thank you for being on the show and, uh, Look forward to next Wednesday, 12 p.m. Eastern time, which I will not be here. I, I don't think uh, Chris will be guest hosting. So y'all can have some fun with him. All right. Uh, for those who are tuning in at home, appreciate you doing so. Thank you for those who share this video and support Answering Religious Air by sending in those questions and helping get the word out about our live Bible Q&A. We do go live every Wednesday at 12 p.m. Eastern time. If you're not able to catch us live, you can catch us on demand on YouTube. Twitter or Facebook. 
as well as on all major podcast platforms. This show will be uploaded after we are live, as well as our Tuesday show, which we are currently doing a study of Ecclesiastes. That's every Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern time. But starting April 4th with our brand new series that is coming, Why I Believe, dot, dot, dot. And it's going to be dealing with different topics like why do I believe in the inspiration of the scriptures? Why do I believe there is a God? Why do I believe Jesus is real? Why do I believe in the resurrection of Jesus? So those are some different topics we're going to be talking about to give the Christians some uh, some evidence for those things, but also to build your faith and to help you go out as uh, you uh, conquer the world through uh, proclaiming Jesus the Christ. And so uh, we hope that you look forward to that series, that you tune in. You can watch us live every Tuesday starting April 4th at 12 p.m. Eastern Time. And uh, that is for our brand new series that will be on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and podcast platforms. Also on Mondays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time is Bob's Bible Basics. And so if you are interested in the foundational aspect of the scriptures, the basics, you're on the milk of the word, or perhaps you just want to go back and remind yourself about those kinds of things, then tune in to Bob's Bible Basics every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time on Facebook and on YouTube. And then there is Older Women Likewise every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. You can find them on Facebook, YouTube, and podcast. Just search for Older Women Likewise. That is a show for women by women. Mark Dunnigan, who's on the show today, his wife helps run that page as well as host that show. So appreciate all the work those women are doing for the kingdom. And then last but not least, The Daily Answer with Mark Dunnigan as your host. That is Monday through Friday, 5 a.m. Eastern time. Appreciate all the work he uh, does go that goes into that. I believe uh, today was episode 142. And so he is just going along and, and pushing those out. And so appreciate the work that he's doing. As you get ready for work, you can listen to Mark challenge you and give you a story and mix some uh, Bible in there and give you some hope for the day. That is the Daily Answer with Mark Dunnigan every Monday through Friday, 5 a.m. Eastern time. And that is on all podcast platforms. Just search for the Daily Answer or Answering Religious Error, and I'm sure you'll be able to find it. And if not, reach out to us and we will do our best to add it to that uh, podcast that you're that uh, wherever you stream from. That's all the time we have for today. Have a great week. God bless.